Support for today's episode of Rock Chalk Sports Talk comes from Manscaped. Father's Day is just around the corner, and you probably need a gift for that hairy dad of yours. Make your dad proud this year and get him and yourself the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package. You know what they say, like father, like son. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package is perfect for you and your dad in your life to complete your grooming game. Get 20% off and free shipping. 20% off and free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming, and their brand-new shaving tools just dropped right in time for Father's Day. You probably never know what to get your dad for Father's Day. Are you going to get him socks again? Are you going to get him a tie? Are you going to get him golf balls again? Do something different. Order with Manscaped. You can even get him something if he has, like, the nose hairs. Get him one of the nose hair shavers. They have them at Manscaped, and you can get 20% off. With code RCST, plus you get free shipping at manscaped.com with that code RCST. Again, get 20% off and free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code RCST. It's dad bod season. Time to get smooth. All right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson in for Nick Schwert today on your Friday here on RCST. Lots of guests later this hour. Alex Nichols, the head coach for the Caw Valley FC soccer team. They're going to be playing here in Lawrence on Saturday. Might be something for you to go on out and do this weekend. Also, CJ Moore of The Athletic is going to join us here in about 35 minutes from right now. Talk a little KU basketball and some more on the Coach K News. We'll also, at the top of the 4 o'clock hour, be joined by Stephen Lassen of Athlon Sports. Um, the Athlon Sports College Football Preseason Preview Magazine is out and about, so you can go get that, and we're going to preview the Big 12 and a little KU football with Stephen Lassen, so that'll be an exciting conversation. And then, I know we just had him on yesterday, but Scott Chasen of 24-7 Sports, Fog.net, is going to join us again today, but this time we're going to be talking NBA playoffs with Scott. He's a big Phoenix Suns fan, and last night was a good night for the Suns as they took down the Lakers in Game 6 to move on to the second round of the NBA playoffs. You know, with KU bringing on these seven different transfers from Buffalo, I I, I started to kind of dig into this, and you wonder if it's risky at all in hurting scholarship numbers that we've talked about for so long here at Kansas. Does it affect that at all? Obviously, the players you bring in, any help, any reinforcements is awesome for this KU football team. But is it going to set KU back after they've spent all this time bringing in all these high school kids to try to overcome 
the lack of scholarship numbers they had after the Charlie Weiss era? I, I think the short answer is no. But just to go into this, I, I think it helps that all these players have multiple years left of play that you're bringing in. Now, if you wanted to argue against that, you could say, yeah, but all those Juco guys that Charlie Weiss brought in, they had multiple years of play. They came in as sophomores or juniors, and that severely harmed the program. But that said, think about just the ability to catch up in scholarship players this year with extra years of eligibility where you're bringing all these seniors back, or not all, but some, combined with less miles, bringing in a bunch of these high school players. You get 85 scholarships in total on the team. So theoretically, if you recruit 25 players a year, that's the max you can do. 25 scholarships in a given year to your incoming class. If you did that for four straight years, math doesn't work out there, right? You'd end up with 100. So, in theory, you're expected to lose some players. So, you can get away with it a little bit if you're using some scholarship on these transfers. And you also lost some other transfers this year, too, right? You lose, like, an Andrew Parchment to Florida State, for instance. Um, you lose Marcus Harris. You lose DeJon Terry. You're losing some guys that the scholarships can match up there. This just can't be the be-all, end-all, or the driving force to bring in players, all the transfers. And... To a certain extent, that's kind of what Charlie Weiss was doing. It's just with JUCO transfers and some other transfers as well. Think of Justin McKay and Dane Christ, and, and the list goes on and on. The transfer thing is a nice supplement to the team. It's the side dish. It's the mass, mashed potatoes. It's not the main course. It's not the steak. And to be clear, I, I don't think Lance Leipold bringing in seven players from Buffalo, where I guess six and, and one who was going to come to Buffalo is going to be the main resource for bringing in talent. I think just given the situation of formerly being at Buffalo and having these connections with some good players, and you pair that with the new transfer rules, it just kind of all came together. And the new transfer landscape is going to make this more common, not just for KU, everyone in the country, whether that is bringing players in, whether that's losing players. So you're going to have to get used to it. But I don't think this is a signal to say, oh, well, what happened to just all these high school guys? It's different. And again, all these guys have multiple years. Michael Ford, he's a redshirt freshman on the offensive line. Rich Miller, second-time sophomore, so you get three years out of him. Mike Nowitzki, second-time redshirt sophomore, get three years out of him. Hypothetically, of course, as long as nobody went pro early or something, which probably not the case for most players, but maybe Nowitzki was rated as a top-five center um, by Pro Football Focus this past year. Trevor Wilson is a sophomore, and I'm not even sure on that one because – um, I think he was like a redshirt freshman last year. So can you get another year because of the COVID year? I, I don't know. But you get at least three more years out of Trevor Wilson, the speedy receiver. Uh, Ronald McGee, he's a second-year junior. So that's more like taking on a Juco guy, except here's the difference. Like with McGee, he has more experience than a normal Juco guy, and he followed his coach here, meaning you don't have to worry about him never playing or leaving the team like we saw with many of those Weiss Juco transfers. I think it was Markel Combs, the name of the former defensive lineman, who he was like the top Juco prospect, and he comes into KU, and he just like never played. And then he left after like four games or something. You don't have to worry about that. And sure, just like a, a normal Juco player, McGee only had, would have two more years for you, but he was with this coach. He came over with this coach. He obviously is fine sticking around with this coach. And he has D1 experience. 
prior to that in a position you need. And again, this isn't how you're building the roster. These are just supplements. Zion DeBose, same way. Grad transfer, he has two years left to play. Eddie Wilson, really good player. He's got two years left. So any questions I had, and, and I don't know if anybody else was like this wondering, well, is this going to be bad for the scholarship numbers and, and so forth? No, I think they're going to be just fine. I think the more more posing question is how much does any of it matter, though, unless you find your quarterback? Because as far as this year, it probably doesn't matter much, right? Vegas is predicting Kansas to win one game. You could exceed expectations and win three. Maybe that can only happen if you find the quarterback, but we all know this is about the long haul, right? Like the Lance Leipold hire is not all about what happens in year one, year two. It's about what the program can get to, hopefully, by year three, four, five, whenever that is. But I think at the very least, the offensive line should be better this year, especially when you bring on a couple of those guys, Mike Nowitzki notably. Hopefully it's good enough that we can at least evaluate the quarterback because that was the thing last year. It didn't seem like you had any answers at quarterback a year ago. But what if, for all we know, like one of those guys would have been as good as Carter Stanley was a couple years ago if the offensive line was just like average instead of just another disaster as it was last year? And so if the offensive line can be better this year, then it gives you your chance to do this because all these roster moves you make and all this building toward progress you're doing, if you can't find at least, and again, I'm not saying the next Todd Reese, and I'm not saying an all-Big 12 quarterback, just find a guy who can come in and be Carter Stanley from a couple years ago because that was good enough for you to win three games that year. And honestly, you probably should have won four or five that year when you look at a couple of the other games that you were close in. Maybe with a new coaching staff and better X's and O's and game management, those would have turned into wins. So just be Carter Stanley, solid quarterback. Doesn't have to be all conference. But, but to find that guy to where you can hit that stride You need at least a good enough offensive line to evaluate that. You need at least players around them that are good enough that it's not all on the quarterback. And I don't think we got the answer to that last year. So maybe it doesn't matter right now, not in year one, at least when you're not expected to win more than one game. But at some point it will, and it'd be nice if all these high school guys and transfers you brought in get utilized properly around a solid quarterback, which will be another in a long list of things the coaching staff has to figure out and or develop. But I think bringing on these scholarship players with the transfers, I wouldn't worry about the scholarship numbers. And if anything, it might help you figure something out, like finding a quarterback, which is going to help you in the future when you get to year two or year three under Lance Leipold. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Alex Nichols going to join us on the other side. Welcome back to Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson in for Nick Schwartz today on a Friday Took off a little bit early, but you know who's not taking off early? C.J. Moore joining us from The Athletic. Uh, C.J., I know you had your piece with Ochai. That would have been, I don't know, a week or two ago where you had the Q&A with him, and you should still go check that out in The Athletic if you haven't already. But I know he mentioned in it kind of taking Memorial Day weekend to, to talk things over with his family. Not that he'd necessarily have a decision at the end of it, 
Obviously, we are a week out from Memorial Day now. But do you think it's as simple as if he gets that promise at any point from NBA? Maybe it's one team. Maybe he needs multiple teams. Uh, you'll basically hear him say he's staying in the draft as soon as he gets that promise. Where if he doesn't get that promise, then we should just know he didn't get the promise because he's coming back? Um, I don't know if it's as simple as that, but I think you're, you're probably close. Like, I, I think if he gets an idea that he's going to be drafted or, um, you know, maybe a team says, hey, we don't know if we're going to draft you, but you're definitely going to get a two-way from us, maybe he'll be tempted to to, to stay in, you know, the draft or, or go go pro. But um, I, I do think he's he's kind of going back and forth. And, you know, before talking to him and, and as I started to talk to him, I kind of got the idea that, that he wants to stay in the draft. But then as we get, went further and further to talk, you know, I thought, well, maybe, maybe he's considering coming back. So um, I, I don't think he's he's decided yet. And I, I think, you know, he, he kept talking. He kept hitting on that. You know, he wants the feedback. He wants the feedback. He wants the feedback. And, and really, as early as he was in the process, um, he hadn't gotten that feedback yet, so so I think these next couple of weeks um, will be very important towards him, him making an educated decision. Do you almost have to nowadays with so many kids entering into the draft? Do you kind of have to get multiple promises in this draft process? Because I I don't know. I, I feel like there have been so many stories of, hey, this team told me they were going to take me here, or they told me they were going to give me a two-way contract, but they told me that not thinking that this other player was going to even be there for their situation, and now all of a sudden I'm, I'm kind of left out to dry. Yeah, I mean, possibly. I, I think you have to get an idea that, that you're – you're going to be drafted or like if you go undrafted, you're definitely going to end up on a roster. Um, you know, you go back to last year with, with Devon Dotson, I think he was probably really, really, really surprised that he didn't get drafted. Um, if he had to do it over again, would he have come back to school? I, I, don't, I don't know. Cause you know, he still got the two way. Um, he, he was still able to, to, to make a team. So um, it's, it's tough. You know, every, every guy is, is a, uh, it's their own situation. Some guys are, are ready to start making money, whether that's in the NBA, overseas, whatever. So, um, you know, it's it's it's, it's hard. To, I think every situation is is unique to itself. And I know your colleague Sam Vecini at the Athletic. Uh, you can go check out his big board where he has all these guys ranked. Ochai is in the top hundred now. I know he wasn't there before. Um, I don't know if that's you know workout stuff or I know Sam has mentioned in the past that. He tends to not rank guys or rank them as highly if he doesn't think they're going to be in the draft. So maybe there's a push there just with some uncertainty whether he's entering or not. But uh, is there a right answer to whether if you're KU, because I'm, I'm certain that most people would say, who do you think is more likely to come back? Obviously, you'd probably say Jalen, then Ochai. But let's say hypothetically you could only have one back if you're KU. Is there a better answer which one would fit the current roster or the roster for next year better on the team? Uh, I don't know. Not necessarily. I mean, Ochai is probably the better player at this point. So I guess you would say, you know, Ochai is a, a, a better immediate guy, but um, Jalen's got more eligibility left. So, um, you know, if you could get one back and you get maybe a couple of years out of him, maybe you take that. So um, I, I'd be really, really surprised if, if Jalen stays in the draft. You know, I could be wrong on that, but um, I, I think he'll be back in school, and 
Um, you know, I think Ochai is a, a coin flip. Maybe maybe not quite a coin flip. I, I think he's he's probably sixty forty gone. If I had to guess, that's that's simply a guess. Let's say, though, both did come back, and at that point you'd have four starters returning to a team that outside of that has a bunch of new guys. Do you think it'd be as simple to say all four guys would kind of return to their starting roles, or are you not so certain that would happen? No, you know, I I think if everybody's back, then, uh, you know, Remy Martin is going to start, and I think Joseph Yusefu will probably start. I think Bill Self wants to go back to, to starting two little guards. Like he's like he's done for for a long time, you know. Like he's done with most of his best teams. So, I think they'll they'll start a smaller backcourt. So, you know, conceivably, if everybody was back, then then you know, obviously, somebody's not going to start of that of on that four. Um, it's probably maybe you know maybe Christian Brown coming off the bench. I don't think it matters that much. I think all four of those guys are going to play close to starter minutes. Um, so I'm not sure it really really matters who's starting. But if I had to guess, uh, I'd say maybe CB would come off the bench in that scenario. And I guess if if that all worked out, would there be like one position group or position battle or just, I guess, kind of uh, positional battle to get into the rotation at all that would intrigue you most? Would it be that kind of backup point guard role? Would it be what they do with the backup big? Where would you kind of look at for intrigue? Uh, I'm I'm really interested to see how he handles his front court. You know, how often they play small, how often they play big. Um, You know, two, two of those guys that are are going to be, you know, conceivably a part of the rotation. Cam Martin and Zach Clements are interesting dudes, but, you know, probably more fives than fours. But you could play them fours because they're good enough shooters. So, you know, how often does does Self go to that lineup? How often does does he stick to just simply small ball, which is the way he's kind of preferred to play? the last handful of years. So um, that, that would probably be the thing that I'd be most intrigued to see kind of how it plays out. Could you see a scenario where maybe Dewan Harris or Bobby Pettiford or one of these other guards actually ends up being a better guard pairing with Remy Martin just so that you, I know with Dewan Harris, he's a small guard as well, but just so that you have one offense, one defense, or do you think that won't necessarily matter as much when you have a coach who has done so well on the defensive end over the course of his career? Yeah, I mean, guys are going to guard for Bill Self and they're not going to play. So, um, you know, Remy Martin, if you if you go back and, and read the piece I did um, after he signed talking to, to Pac-12 coaches, like, um, you know, they talk about he's, he's capable of guarding and, and a pr- pretty good defender. So um, I don't know that you want necessarily d- defense-focused. Like, you just want guys that can play. <laughs> you want guys that can get stuff done. And, um, you know, I think Bill Self really made it a priority to go get guys that can, can actually put the ball in the bucket. Last week, I was I was kind of diving deep into the rotations under Bill Self's team, and because a lot of times in the off season, a lot of the fan base and and we'll fall victim to it too, talking about here on the show like, oh well, this guy's got to play, that guy's got to play, and all of a sudden you end up with ten, eleven guys on the list, and we know that's not how it works. And I looked at a couple different ways that you could view how many guys are playing in the rotation. And pretty much, on average, it was about eight guys would play per year in the rotation. And pretty much 10 out of the 18 years with Bill Self, they're playing an eight-man rotation. But that doesn't mean they're always doing it. There were about a third of the time where he would play a nine- or ten-man rotation. 
And part of that were a couple years, like 2015 and 2019, where maybe it's because you have injuries based on how you're looking at it, or maybe it's because you just couldn't figure out what the right rotation was, what the right fit between the puzzle pieces was. And then there's other years where you had maybe a nine-man rotation when you think of because they're just so deep, like it's 08 or 2011. I think they did in 2006 and 2016 as well. As you look at this roster, do you view it as, I know it's going to be impossible to say the exact number without seeing these guys play, but do you view it going into the season as being one that you think is going to be a little bit deeper in the rotation, like some of those nine or ten-man ones in the past? I mean, it's always easy to say that it looks that way now. I mean, I think it looked that way a year ago probably, right? Like, you're like, well, man, this guy's got to play, and this guy's got to play, and um, you know, one of those guys that we thought was going to play is Ty and Grant Foster, and he barely played at all. So, um, like you said, Bill Self usually leans towards eight guys, maybe nine. Um, but it, it's it's going to be a, um, you know, a, a competitive October and November for, for those guys because there's a lot of dudes on here that you would think, you know, that guy's probably going to play. So, um, but when, when you get down to it, like he's going to go with the guys they trust and there's such thing as playing too many guys. Like you can't play a ton of guys, like guys have to get their rhythm and stuff like that. So at some point there has to be a cutoff. Do you almost feel like with everything that's happened with the transfer portal, it almost feels like to me, you got to kind of like take a stand as a coach where it's, you know, we're just going to accept the fact that if we don't deepen our rotation, Maybe we're going to lose a few more guys, but we just have to kind of be fine with that. And, you know, maybe that's just part of the strategy now with roster construction where you figure, you know, we we hope that some of these freshmen coming in or some of these other transfers coming in stick with us for the long haul in the program. But worst case, I guess, if they end up leaving, we'll just hit the transfer market again next year. Pretty much. I mean, you can't, it's, it's hard to keep everybody happy with the young guys you try to kind of get them to trust the process and point to guys that have, you know, a, a Travis Relaford types like that who, who maybe didn't play early on in the career but were really, really big-time impact guys um, later. And it's I think it's getting harder and harder to get people to buy into that because they can just not – they don't have to sit a year. They can transfer and go find somewhere where they think they can play right away. So um, it's a challenge. But, yeah, I do, I do think you're going to continue to see that turnover – Every year, as, as far as guys, you know, towards the end of the bench, and you know, it's going to be it, one thing that's going to make it even muddier this year is, you know, with like Kansas, they've got 14 scholarships because of the rule where, you know, a guy like Mitch Lightfoot's a super senior and, and, and can play an extra season, and you've got teams like that to have maybe 14, 15 scholarships. Like nobody's playing that many guys, you know, so so you're going to continue to see a lot of dudes transfer. Now, I think this particular year with so many people getting the extra year of eligibility and some of, the, some of those guys transferring and yada, 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 I think this might be the craziest it ever gets, but I could be wrong there. We're talking with C.J. Moore. You can check out all his work in The Athletic. Uh, C.J., obviously Coach K has – uh, made the biggest ripple in the college basketball world this weekend with the news he'll be retiring at the end of this season. Do you think once Coach K moves on and John Shire's the next coach, do you think they'll be able to sustain where they are? Or I guess where's the drop-off there? Because I look at certain schools like 
you know, Indiana or Georgetown. Uh, maybe you say UCLA after John Wooden, where you know they've had good seasons in there, but mm-hmm. it just hasn't been sustained to the same level. Do you think it's going to be closer to that, or do you think they will kind of prove themselves that they are in that class with? Because it's weird. You could argue they're you know a top two blue blood, yet you could also argue that the Kansases and the Kentuckys and North Carolinas have all kind of gone through the multiple coach thing. Yeah, I think it's it's really hard. You know, I think the thing that Duke has going for it is that the brand with the young people is is really strong. Like, you know, obviously the UCLA brand's strong, but like Winslow, like they haven't consistently been good and haven't been winning bunch of championships for a long time um so you know that that's that's something that that i think is helping duke uh i think i think shire like is an engaging personality you, you know he's he's a, he's a really really nice guy like people like him so it's going to come down to like how, how well can he recruit and, and can he continue that level of elite recruiting that coach k was able to do um if he can you know this might be a good thing for Duke because honestly, like I think coach Cade kind of lost his fastball and, um, you know, it was probably stepping away at the, at the right time. And, uh, you know, if, if, if Shire can, um, still get really good players and, and maybe coach them up a little bit more, you know, maybe, maybe Duke's better off, but, um, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch like these next four or five years, how it plays out because, um, as my, colleague even Brennan wrote you know this week like there's chance they become Indiana you know it's, it's not always easy when you're replacing a legend so um, that's what's made it so incredible what Kansas has been able to do what North Carolina and Kentucky uh, doesn't matter the coach those teams just keep winning and winning and winning um, so we'll see what do yeah and I, I guess I'm interested too to see how not just Duke but North Carolina does with you bring in an internal hire, and I think I saw today from Jeff Goodman that um, Duke hired a search firm, and it only took him 10 days to get to John Shire, which that seems a little silly. Maybe it, it shows a lot of confidence or something. I, I don't know. That's just a little weird. But uh, the fact that you have both these Blue Blood schools bringing on internal hires of guys, if this works out for both these schools, could you see this just becoming kind of the norm? No, I I think that it is a um, both are unique situations where they feel like they have to keep it in the family. And honestly, I think it's a dumb way to go about it. Like I think you just go out and hire the best coach you can hire. Um, like if it, when when Bill Self leaves, do they need to hire a Kansas guy? No, just go hire the next Bill Self. So um, I think it's it's kind of silly. Now I, I like John a lot, and I, I you know I, I hope he. Is able to do well. Like he's a really, really nice guy. Um, I don't know Hubert, but but he's um, you know respected in the industry, and and I, I understand why those schools went that route. But I also think it's like silly just to limit yourself to, to guys that are in the family. Yeah, well, I, I guess KU doesn't have to worry about that because you know those guys are super young, like up-and-coming assistant coaches. KU, all their assistant coaches are not like former KU guys. You know, Norm Roberts was a St. John's mm-hmm. and so forth, and they're more so at the end of their coaching career. So uh, I guess they don't have to worry about that. But hypothetically, I guess let's just play that out. If KU had to hire a KU alumni, who's at the top of that list? I know Nick asked this to Jesse earlier, but he limited it to Bill Self, guys. If I gave you the full universe of former KU basketball players, who's at the top of that list? 
Oh man, like I, I'd, I'd probably go with somebody like an Aaron Miles or a, a Jock Vaughn. Like I, I don't, I don't know that I'd necessarily go to guys that are currently in college. Like Mark Turgeon's the easy answer, um, but I, I don't, I don't think I'd go that route. I think I'd, I'd you know maybe go outside the box a little bit. But, again, I wouldn't hire KU guy most likely. Like I'd, <laughs> I'd go find who, 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 you know, I think is the, the best the best candidate, and it doesn't matter where they went to school. I know uh, Mario Chalmers and Frank Mason both at some point over this past year tweeted out that how crazy it would be if they became head coach. There's, there's still an assistant coach opening for KU. If, if Frank Mason or Mario Chalmers wants to, to call their basketball career a little bit uh, early, a little earlier for, for Frank than it would Mario, you know, who knows? Maybe they take that assistant job and, and work their way up, and maybe we're uh, having a different discussion in, in seven years. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, uh, I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> He's CJ Moore. You can check out all his work. Always great work in the athletic. Worth the cost of subscription on its own. You're going to get great other college basketball and and other coverage as well with the athletic. CJ, thank you so much for the time. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, that's CJ Moore of the athletic joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. This episode is brought to you by Tommy's Express Car Wash. Join the Tommy Club. You can download the Tommy Club app and enjoy endless washing for one low price, Derek. That means unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry, unlimited use of exclusive app lane, which, by the way, I've taken advantage of. It's kind of like the the express lane on the highway. You don't necessarily like to lord over everybody else, but when you're zooming through, and getting in to get your car washed first. Like, that's why it's called Tommy's Express, right? You get unlimited access to all their locations, unlimited guest service, and perhaps most importantly, unlimited happiness, Derek. And I think that's something that we just don't emphasize nearly enough in life. I'm looking at your car right now. I'm thinking it could maybe use a trip to Tommy's Express. What do you got going on later? Thinking maybe you should stop there on your way home. You going to at least consider it? I will absolutely be going to Tommy's Express Car Wash. Now, the, the outside of your car, the exterior, it does look okay. Where my concern begins is the interior of your car. Yeah. When you have I, a, I don't a think dog. I don't think the inside of that car has seen a deep cleaning in quite some time. No, when you have a dog, when you have a golden retriever, you got hair everywhere. And they have those vacuums that, you know, it's going to get out for you. So, yeah, I'm definitely making an appointment Tommy's Express Car Wash. What I love about the, the vacuums at Tommy's Express, the cord comes down from the top. So you're not having to try and wrap it around your car and getting yourself into a pretzel. No, very flexible vacuums. You want to go to the left side of the car, the right side of your car. You're perfectly good. Tommy's Express Car Wash. Wash, rinse, repeat. Four o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson, and joining me now on the phone, a first-time guest, Stephen Lassen, who works for Athlon Sports, which this is prime college football preview magazine season. Uh, Athlon Sports does... 
as good of work as, as anyone on the college football front. And Athlon Sports is always my favorite preseason college football magazine. It's not just about the predictions and uh, looking at certain all-conference picks or whatnot, but they do a really good job of making everything digestible with every team, with looking at the offense, the defense. They have some quotes in there from other coaches. So I highly recommend go checking it out, and uh, you can just go to a bunch of places to go get the magazine. You can order it online. We'll, we'll talk with Stephen a little bit about that in a second here. But, uh, Stephen, thank you to, for uh, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, I doubt that you were – expecting to hear from uh, a local Lawrence station with KU football uh, to talk some college football here. Hey, Derek, it's good to talk to you, and thanks for having me on. I should say, uh, you know, an even bigger thank you, because since the magazine has hit the newsstand, I have been inundated with requests from SEC country to come on the radio and talk about college football, SEC top 25. This is the first venture into the Big 12. So uh, thank you for kind of helping me escape SEC country for a little bit and talk about some of the other teams in college football. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, and I guess, you know, you can you can see the magazine and see the exact order that you guys have the projection for the Big 12. And, and I do want to bring that up. I know that's something that uh, you guys stress in your preseason, I guess, rankings, you could put them. It's how you project it to finish. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you think this team's better than that team, but based on them playing a certain schedule, you think that team will finish at a higher point than another team. So one thing I want to kind of do is kind of tear things out in the Big 12. Instead of it just being this team's one, this team's six, this team's nine, this team's ten, and kind of go through what you would think in, in grouping these these teams together. So if I gave you the first tier and I titled that tier one as the title favorites of the Big 12. You could say title favorite or title favorites. I'll leave that up to you. Uh, Who would you go in that first tier? I would go with Oklahoma and and Iowa State in that first tier. I think, first of all, I think Oklahoma is the best team in the Big 12. Uh, Certainly when we talk about Oklahoma, offensive firepower with Spencer Rattler and Lincoln Riley. But I think it's Oklahoma's defense that gives them a chance to get far in the playoff and potentially get to the national championship game. It's a defense that's gotten a lot better. I like Iowa State from the experience factor and just the trend line. Matt Campbell has done a tremendous job at Iowa State. You look at that roster, experience in big-time spots on both sides of the ball. Brock Purdy, Brees Hall is back. One of the best defenses year in and year out in the Big 12. I think from a personnel standpoint, there's no doubt that Oklahoma has the better roster. I think we have to include Iowa State in that first tier simply because they beat Oklahoma last year. And in a one-game scenario in the Big 12 championship game, Iowa State, which gave Oklahoma a lot of trouble last year in this game, could do the same thing once again. So, So while I think Oklahoma on paper is the better team, just some of those factors in a one-game scenario with an experienced roster, Iowa State could easily pull off the upset once again. As far as the playoff goes, what you mentioned the defense. Is it a lot easier to see Oklahoma actually winning a playoff game because of the defense? Does it also have to do with, I mean, is there as much of an inevitability, so to speak, about Clemson and Alabama this year as, as there maybe has been in years past? Like, Could you actually see Oklahoma winning the title? Yeah, I could. I actually can. I think it's two kind of things you got at there. Number one, I think all of the teams at the top have some flaws. Um, Alabama's is you know 
pretty difficult to get past, as we've seen in college football the last couple of years. But they do have a new offensive coordinator, a lot of new faces on, on you know offense. It's probably not going to be as dominant uh, from a production standpoint as it was last year. It's still going to be pretty dang good. Uh, we saw Clemson in the college football playoff have a lot of issues along the offensive line and in the secondary. And if, hypothetically, if we're looking down the road, Oklahoma's offense, uh, against Clemson secondary would be a pretty uh, favorable matchup. So I, I think when you look at Oklahoma, the pack at the top of college football this year might not be as dominant with Alabama maybe regressing just slightly. And then I think you also look from a Oklahoma-specific standpoint, scoring points has not been a problem. They just need their defense to get timely stops. And I think they have the personnel and talent in place. A great example would be in our national position rankings this was the first time in a couple years we actually considered oklahoma's defensive line linebacker unit and secondary for all spots in the top 10 so clearly the talent and production are getting better you don't have to be dominant on defense you just need to get some timely stops and i think oklahoma can do that now we're talking with Stephen Lassen here of Athlon Sports on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. So moving on from Tier 1, if you have Iowa State and Oklahoma as the contenders, if I said Tier 2 was like the, I guess, dark horses and maybe the secondary contenders, so to speak, and then, I, I don't know, maybe you'd even want to include Tier 3 here as well because maybe that's like your lower uh, to middle of the pack in the Big 12 because it, uh, the only reason I would include those two together seemingly side-by-side side, is it feels like to me – that in the Big 12, realistically, you could see like any team between the three and whatever mark lower end of the conference finishing at third or, or maybe even sneaking into that Big 12 championship game. Would you agree with that? Totally agree with you. I think three through seven in the conference is really a toss-up on many fronts. You know, you can shake those teams up in different orders. You're looking at some teams that play – you know, five road games in Big 12 play versus four home games. There's there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, in that range. This is where we spend a lot of time sorting out these teams. And you also have factors like Texas uh, with the first-year coach and Steve Sarkeesian. Kansas State, which had a lot of guys missing time last year, uh, struggled down the stretch. But the track record uh, under Chris Kleiman is certainly there. So, I think that three through seven range is where you're going to see a lot of differences in preseason predictions. And I also think that's kind of where, for me, the intrigue in the league is outside of Oklahoma versus Iowa State. There's just so many storylines and potential for these teams. Which of those teams do you think would have the highest ceiling that, you know, if let's say Iowa State ended up being a good team, not a great team, and one of those other teams could match Oklahoma into the Big 12 championship game. Uh, who would be that school that you think maybe the floor's not there, but the ceiling could be up to that level? You know, I really like TCU. Uh, we picked Texas ahead of TCU in our magazine, but I, I actually like TCU a little bit more than the Longhorns. I, I think, for number one, you know, we saw this team at the end of last season win five out of their last six games, and a big reason why was the play of Max Duggan. Led the team in rushing, started to develop as a passer. I think having a full off season to work as the starter with some of those pieces that TCU was utilizing last year on offense with the young skill talent will be a huge boost 
uh, to this group. And, and also, as we know, TCU under Gary Patterson, usually one of the better defenses in the conference. Certainly some losses in the secondary and at linebacker they're going to have to replace. But the way they finished last season and just kind of trusting Gary Patterson combined with Max Duggan's development, I think TCU, it would not surprise me at all if they may be the surprise of the conference. The other team that intrigues me, and it's it's Texas. I mean, they have talent. I think Bijan Robinson's going to have a monster season. I just don't know what to expect out of a first-year coach. I mean, he's Sarkeesian. I like the hire, but there's a lot of uncertainty here. They're they're kind of the biggest wild card in the conference. So I think TCU would be that team for me. But I think Texas is also the biggest wild card. And that sounds all too familiar for for Austin down there. That you know <laughs> they're going to be barely preseason ranked. They'll finish right around there after they just destroy some Pac-12 team in the Alamo Bowl. Like it's just it's just always what seemingly has happened over the last five ten years. Uh, we're talking with Stephen Lassen here of Athlon Sports. So you said kind of the teams three through seven in that range. That would leave three teams left in the Big 12. Um, would you say they're all on a tier to themselves, or would you put Kansas on a tier of the bottom dwellers all to their own? I would put Kansas in a tier of its own. Um, I think Baylor and Texas Tech are close. I actually was a little surprised when we went into our preseason prediction meeting of, of how much I kind of talked myself into Texas Tech uh, being maybe a little bit better than I thought. I think, first of all, for Baylor, they were kind of one of those teams that I could see taking a little bit of a jump, almost from a from a, just an overall performance from having a first-year coach and the unusual nature of the offseason and last year. They could just be better from just having a normal offseason. They certainly have a question mark at quarterback with Charlie Brewer transferring. I think their defense is going to be pretty good, though. And, and Baylor played better at the end of last season. So I, I think it's not – I know Baylor was not very good last year, but I could see this team getting back into a bowl game. It, no question about it. It is an important year for Matt Wells at Texas Tech. It's never good when your athletic director has to put up the, the vote of confidence after two years. But this defense has improved. Um, it's still got a ways to go. And they brought in a transfer in Tyler Shuck from Oregon to start at quarterback. A little bit different than you're used to seeing at Texas Tech, kind of the drop-back passer. He's a little bit more mobile. So he gives them kind of a little bit of a versatile threat at quarterback. So I think those two teams have a very good chance to get to a bowl game. But I think they're kind of behind that West Virginia-Kansas State tier and kind of in their own mix with Kansas at the bottom. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes it difficult for Kansas in the current iteration of the Big 12. It's no longer the divisions where you can, you know, in one year you're only playing the Iowa State, Missouri, and uh, Kansas State, and if some of those schools have a down season, you can move up. Right now, if you're Kansas, you're kind of waiting for one of those schools to to drop down to where maybe you could move up to ninth in the conference or whatever it would be, and I think that makes it difficult. But as far as the new hire for Kansas with Lance Leipold, um, in your time kind of writing or speaking or just watching like Buffalo when Leipold was with the Bulls, do you have anything that you found really impressive that he did at Buffalo that makes you think maybe this hire could actually be the one that works for KU football? I love the hire for Kansas. And I think the first thing that comes to mind is kind of, you know, consistent grinder kind of mentality. Lance Leipold's not going to win, you know, the flashiest coach in college football award. 
but I think he knows what it takes to build successful programs. And I think it's kind of all those buzzwords you hear uh, from coaches around the country, like building culture, establishing identity. They did that at Buffalo. I mean, Lance Lapole was incredibly successful at Wisconsin Whitewater, and he goes to Buffalo his first two years. They were just 7-17, and 17, but you could kind of see the foundation started to fall into place. And then after that, they won six games. And every year after that, won the Mac East twice. So I think it's, he's the type of coach that you that Kansas needed in the fact that a slow rebuild and kind of doing things the right way with a clear identity and a mentality, I think he's going to do a, a really nice job for Kansas. I think on the field, very versatile. Uh, at, at Buffalo, they had some of the nation's best rushing attacks. They were good on defense, but also when they had the personnel to open up the passing game, that's what they did. So I think he will adapt to the roster, and I also think he will do a very good job of finding guys, and he did this at Buffalo, guys who were under-recruited and developed them into key playmakers. So I think if I'm a Kansas fan, I would be really optimistic as far as the direction of this program. I think Kansas got it right big time. Uh, This was one of the best hires of the offseason. We're talking with Steven Lassen for a few more minutes here from Athlon Sports. Uh, this might be putting you on the spot. I didn't prepare you for this one. But if you had to say the Big 12 has the best position group of any league at a certain spot, like if you were to say, I don't know, the Big 12 has the best quarterbacks or running back or whatever it is, uh, where would you go with that? You know, it's a great question. I think, first of all, I'm always kind of drawn to quarterback play in the Big 12. And this year it was Spencer Rattler, Brock Purdy, uh, Max Duggan, Spencer Sanders. That's a pretty good uh, you know, start at the top for the league. I think nationally, when you start looking at this conference, you're always drawn to the receivers. Uh, Oklahoma's got a lot of guys that are going to be in the mix for all conference honors. Iowa State a couple as well. I, I think the conference is pretty deep at uh, running back, receiver, uh, quarterback position this year. I think defensively, linebackers uh, pretty solid across the board too. So I think in terms of just kind of where they stack up nationally, I, I think Oklahoma's quarterback group probably has to be number one because we're picking Spencer Rattler uh, as our first team All-America uh, quarterback this year. So I would say Oklahoma's quarterbacks are the best in the country right now. And certainly doesn't hurt when you bring in someone like Caleb Williams, a five-star backup either. Yep, certainly. Uh, Big 12 will have more good offensive players. Who would have guessed uh, this year? <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry to uh, you know kind of give you the obvious answer there. <laughs> no, we we've joked around a lot. You put any quarterback with Lincoln Riley, and boom, you have a Heisman contender uh, right there. Who would you say, maybe outside of the quarterbacks, is the most exciting player in the league? Where if you're turning channels on a Saturday, trying to figure out which selection of games you're most interested in watching, and you're like, no, I got, I got to see this guy play. You know, I, uh, I know I'm on a Kansas radio station, so this might be uh, you know, hang-up uh, a priority <laughs> here, but Deuce Vaughn from Kansas State is really exciting, just kind of an all-around playmaker uh, for the Wildcats. Really enjoyed watching him last season, and of course the first uh, kind of upset of the year with that game uh, against Oklahoma. But, you know, outside of Deuce Vaughn, someone like B. John Robinson for Texas at the end of last season just flashed big play potential. You could see you know, him taking off under Steve Sarkeesian, knowing what he did with Najee Harris at Alabama. Um, I think outside of those two, 
On defense, I love watching Mike Rose from Iowa State. He is just all over the field, so fun to watch, sideline to sideline, uh, kind of leading that Iowa State defense. And so I think those guys, uh, Bijan Robinson, Deuce Vaughn, Mike Rose, and I'll throw you out kind of a, a player to watch, Eric Gray, the running back from Oklahoma, transferring in from Tennessee, strong spring, I mean, as if Oklahoma needed another playmaker, I think he's going to be a potential breakout candidate for the Sooners this year. Mm, Love that. So if I gave you, with those three running backs you named, plus you could add Brees Hall into the mix, if I told you over-under of .5 of a running back from the Big 12 gets invited to New York City for the Heisman ceremony, what would you take? I would take probably the under. I, I think it's just such a quarterback award. And when you look nationally, you see Alabama, Clemson, and Spencer Rattler from Oklahoma. Like Those are probably going to be your top three quarterbacks in some sort of order. Throw Sam Howe from North Carolina in there as well. So I, I think it's more of a product of usually it's a quarterback-driven award, although Devonta Smith won it last year. I just think quarterbacks in college football this year are so loaded at the top, it'll be hard for a running back to make it to New York, even if they are first-team Heisman, or All-America, sorry, as they're projecting. I don't know if this would coincide with the same answer of, you know, who's the most exciting in the league, but if I asked you who the most underrated um, players or uh, um, the most underrated player in the Big 12, somebody who maybe isn't getting all that national attention, does anybody come to mind? Yeah, I think there are a couple. I think, first of all, Terrell Bernard, the linebacker from Baylor. You know, I, I know we have him first team all Big 12, but he was hurt last season. And I think kind of, you know, you go back to the 2019 season, he was a guy that probably should have been in the mix for, you know, preseason All-America Defensive Player of the Year consideration in the Big 12. And I think in this defense under Dave Aranda, he could have a really monster type of season this year if he can stay healthy. So I think Terrell Bernard kind of under the radar, kind of forgotten about. And you also kind of look at some guys uh, like Hodges Tomlinson, the cornerback from TCU. Cornerbacks are always hard just because the stats, you know, if you don't throw to them, they're not getting the interceptions or the pass deflections. But he had a really quality season last year by the advanced metrics. And probably, you know, we have him on our All-America team. He probably needs to be in the discussion to be one of the top five cornerbacks in college football this year. All right, I got one more question for you, Stephen. The over-under for win total at KU this year was set at one. And it seems like it'll mostly come down to how they do in that FCS matchup the first week of the season against South Dakota. If you win that, you're, you're playing with house money at that point because worst case, uh, you're in a push from there. But if I were to say Kansas is going to win two or more games, let's just say two, and they had to win one other game besides the FCS, who do you think the most likely candidate would be? I think the road game against Duke on September 25th. First of all, Duke is kind of in major rebuild mode. They weren't very good last year. I think that's a very gettable game for Kansas. I think the other one is Texas Tech on October 16th. It's a home game against the team we have picked ninth in the Big 12. And certainly uh, last season, you know, Kansas only losing by three points to the Red Raiders. I think either one of those could be very gettable uh, based upon how far this team progresses in the fall uh, under new coach Lance Leopold. He is Stephen Lassen. You can check out all his work with Athlon Sports. And again, you're going to want to go get that magazine. Stephen, where can you uh, go get your copy? Sure, two ways. 
ways to get it. Uh, right now, it's on bookstores, grocery stores, newsstands. The official on-sale date was May 25th, so it's out everywhere. The second one is AthlonSports.com. At the very top, there's a link to buy your magazine. It takes you to our online store. You can pick out any cover you want and have it shipped to you. Again, Stephen Lassen from Athlon Sports. Stephen, thank you so much for the time, and uh, hopefully we can chat with you again down the road. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. I enjoyed it. All right, Stephen Lassen, Athlon Sports. Go get that magazine today. I love it. And they actually use like local beat writers as well to help them come up with all the, the different coverage of the different teams and stuff. So you're getting from the local area instead of just somebody all national. You basically have it sourced up from the local level, which I think makes it more accurate and you get kind of a better idea on some of these teams. So uh, thanks again to Stephen for joining us on Rock Truck Sports Talk. Scott Chasen is going to join us in a little bit. I know, right? He joined us yesterday. Why are we having him on back-to-back days? His Phoenix Suns took down the Los Angeles Lakers. So we're going to talk a little NBA with Scott coming up later this hour. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk. Welcome back into Rock Truck Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Uh, we're joined by a guest you might be a little familiar with because not only does he come on every week, but he came on yesterday. That would be Scott Jason of 24-7 Sports and Fog.net. But unlike yesterday, we're not bringing Scott on today to talk KU basketball or KU football or recruiting. We're bringing Scott on today because I think he wants to dance on the grave of the L.A. Lakers. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, look, it was a tremendous, stressful series between the Lakers and Suns, but uh, in the end, there were two teams, and one of them, you know, earned the two seed in the West and, and was fantastic all year, and the other uh, earned a Mickey Mouse ring led by, <laughs> you know, obviously LeBron James and A. Disney, as I'm going to start calling him, and yeah, they just couldn't get the job done. Well, you know 100%, like, whenever LeBron does retire, if that was his last title with the Lakers, who knows? Um that's 100% now going to be used. I mean, it already kind of was. Like, if you're MJ over LeBron, that's 100% going to be used now because you didn't win the title this year to seemingly, like, double validate what happened. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I'm mostly joking. I do think the bubble kind of – it was a different environment where role players all seemed to play so much better. Like, no disrespect to a guy like Tyler Hero, but you saw Tyler Hero this year and Tyler Hero last year. And it was like, what you know? What was the difference? I think that was true for a lot of role players. The Lakers shot really, really well from three. The Lakers, uh, at times, the Lakers, you know, hit a lot of mid-range jumpers, especially Anthony Davis, uh, at percentages that you wouldn't normally. And I think it's because that environment almost made some aspects of the game easier and some aspects of the game harder. Now that applies to all teams, but I mean, again, you look at the the success a team like the Heat had. And the Heat were basically, you know, Jimmy Butler and a bunch of and Bam Adebayo and and a bunch of good players, not great players, and yet they make it all the way to the finals. And then you see this year, you know, they get that same matchup against the Bucks, and I believe they got swept. So, um, you know, and not everything is a one to one comparison or anything like that. I think it's a legitimate ring. Obviously, I'm just joking, but um, I don't. I, it's definitely made me question whether or not that ring would have happened in the normal NBA season, if for nothing else. You gave LeBron and Anthony Davis, what, four months to rest and then said, okay, now go play the playoffs. I think that was hugely to the benefit of a guy later in his career in LeBron, who I do think is fantastic, and a guy like Anthony Davis, who, um, you know, I wouldn't make fun of him for it like uh, Charles Barkley, but he is always injured. And, And so for him, just having that chance to rest, I think was a huge deal. 
I mean, where would this for you as a Suns fan? Like, it's obviously been a while since you guys have been in the playoffs. I mean, where does this go up there with in terms of like playoff series wins in your fandom? Yeah, well, I've been a Suns fan since like early 2000s. Um, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The, before the Oklahoma City Thunder were there, so uh, Steve Nash was like my introduction to basketball and. Um, it's, it's definitely up there. 2010 was kind of a magical run because I think everyone knew it was going to be the last ride of the, the Phoenix Suns and, you know, sweeping the Spurs after they had trouble with the Spurs for so many years was awesome. Uh, and they got to a game five against the Lakers. It was two, two, uh, tied it up with a, a bank shot three from Jason Richardson and Kobe airballed the would be game winner, but Ron Artest, uh, was there to put it back in. And, and I think that, you know, that series, that time was probably the most fun that I've had until obviously this year because the Suns, uh, they haven't been back in the playoffs. They lost in six in that series. Um, and, you know, they've had some decent teams. They had a team win 48 games that didn't make the playoffs, which I believe tied the record for most wins uh, of a, a non-playoff team. So they've definitely been close. They've definitely had some good teams, but they've also had some really, really, really bad teams. Uh, you know, it's right up there just because I'm not the oldest guy. Uh, my conscious memory doesn't go back much further than just a few of those seven seconds or uh, less Suns team runs. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely up there. It was definitely fun. It was very stressful in games two and three. Um, you know, it, it's unfortunate because both teams dealt with a lot of or, or a serious injury to a, a really important player, Chris Paul for the Suns, Anthony Davis for the Lakers. I, I would have loved to see how that series would have gone if both guys were 100% healthy. And, you know, the closest we probably got to that was game one, and the Suns won that one by double digits. So uh, I don't know that they would have or would not have won the series anyway. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun, especially the uh, the, the blowout games. And as, what, Devin Booker dropped 47 points with 11 rebounds, that was a lot of fun to watch too. Did you actually, like coming into the series, think that, I mean, always as a fan, like there's a piece of your head that's like, well, if this yeah. goes right for us. But did you actually think you would beat the Lakers? No, I thought the Lakers would win in five. Um, and not because I doubted the Suns or anything like that, but because young guys don't normally play well in their first go-round in the playoffs. It, it takes some time. Uh, I expected Booker to play well because that's always been the kind of guy he is. He's always wanted. There was a story about Summer League going back to like his first or second year where he wasn't going to play every game because he was clearly good enough to where he didn't have to. And they tried to tell him that. And the next game was against, I believe, the Lakers, and it was national TV. And he said, basically, no, I want to beat the Lakers on national television. I'm playing. And so, like, that's always been the kind of guy that Devin Booker has been. But guys like Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, DeAndre Ayton, um, you didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't expect Ayton to be that good. So, yeah, I, I thought the experience of the Lakers, who I kind of thought, you know, they were able to rest their guys and get healthier. I thought that would definitely pay off. Um, after watching game one, it kind of changed my mind just because Chris Paul barely played and didn't play well at all. And the Suns were just dominant, uh, in that game. And, you know, obviously the series shifted, they double teamed Booker, uh, the Lakers did a lot and they kind of figured out ways to, to mix and match. But, you know, the Suns were a really good team in the regular season. They probably tried harder than a lot of other teams, which is in part, you know, how you end up with the two seed if you maybe don't have the second best roster in the West or the second best roster in the NBA for that matter. But, you know, I think they proved throughout the course of the season that they could do it. I probably wasn't giving them enough respect going into the postseason. Uh, certainly now I think the next series against Denver is going to be really interesting because neither team is healthy, neither team is complete, but uh, I think still both teams are really fun and have a lot of firepower.
Yeah, I, I obviously am a Nuggets fan. You're a Suns fan, so uh, it might get a little hostile um, here over the the next week or two with you coming on the show. But um, in all seriousness, I, I think it's going to be a really good series because you look at the matchup between Jokic and, and Aiton down low. Um, Aiton has been really good. Obviously, I'd, I'd favor Jokic there, but Aiton has been really good and will have certain advantages on Jokic. And then you have the advantage of Devin Booker on whoever the Nuggets guards are going to be. I don't know if Will Barton will be back or not. Um, I think it's just a really intriguing series. And when you look at like the regular season matchups between the two, they were a lot of really close, really good games. Yeah, overtime games, I think two of the three. And, you know, I, I remember the first one. I think Devin Booker got injured. It was like in overtime he got injured or something like that. I, I was struggling to remember the game, uh, but I was watching it. Uh, I remember watching it, and the Suns had a chance maybe to win uh, and let it slip away in, in regulation. Then Booker got injured in overtime. He didn't play the next game. It still went into overtime. And then I think the third game was uh, close, too. So, I mean, it didn't matter who was playing or who wasn't. It just seemed like uh, the two teams found a way to produce really exciting and fun games. And uh, I will say this, too. Uh, I think Aaron Gordon has been such a perfect pickup for Denver. Uh, what he's able to do, not only uh, obviously offensively give them a lift if they need it at times, but uh, defensively, the athleticism. I mean, his skill set is so different. And I'd be really interested to see, you know, if there are times they try and stick him on Devin Booker and, you know, see if he's able to kind of slow him down and bother him with size. Uh, because I think there were times where, not that he's Anthony Davis, but uh, that, you know, going against Anthony Davis or those bigger bodies with longer arms actually seemed to bother Booker um, a fair amount. So, you know, for me, I thought the easier matchup was definitely against uh, Portland. Obviously, Dame Lillard is a tremendous player, but. You know, Portland plays Ennis Canner big minutes. Portland plays Carmelo Anthony big minutes. You can score on them anytime you want. You're never out of any game. Um, I'm really intrigued to see how the matchup against Denver goes just because Jokic is awesome. And uh, I think Michael Porter's coming into his own. I mean, he has been probably for the last two years, but uh, he's a pretty tremendous player too, and it's been fun to watch. We're talking with Scott Chasen here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, so outside of this matchup, and whether you want to include the Nuggets in this or not, what team left in the West do you think you would view as the favorites? I mean, is it just the Suns now by nature of, of beating the previous champion? Would you go with Utah, the top seed? Is it whoever wins the, the Mavericks Clippers series? I, I don't know where you'd go with this. Yeah, I, for the, it was the Clippers for me for the longest time, and I thought we were headed for an LA-LA thing. Even heading into, you know, game six and not knowing or yeah, and not knowing Anthony Davis' status, uh, I was still pretty not certain, but I was thinking about, you know, LA, LA, even with LA down the Clippers down three, two. So yeah, I mean, I, here's the thing. I think the Clippers are the best team on paper, but they never play well when it matters or, or they do to an extent. And then things fall apart. I I'm stunned. Uh, they returned home and lost that game to the Mavericks with the series tied two to two after winning two in a row. I mean, Luca has been banged up a bunch of guys playing poorly. And uh, I mean, it just seems like they haven't adjusted their game plan and, you know, they were like, okay, let's let Luca beat us or, or, you know, let's make Luca beat us. And then Luca was like, okay, I'm one of the best, you know, five ten players in the NBA. I will. And so, uh, you know, to me, maybe the Clippers, um, uh, I've probably discredited the Jazz a little bit more, maybe than I should, mostly because the Suns have handled them every time they've played. I believe the Suns swept them this year. Um, so in those meetings, I wasn't particularly impressed with them, but they are a good team. And I think if they get it together at the right time, they have a chance of going on a run. 
But I don't think they're capable of beating a Milwaukee or a Brooklyn uh, on the other side of the bracket that, you know, four times in a seven game series, especially, you know, whichever team emerges from that series will be so battle tested. So, yeah, I mean, the Clippers are down 3-2 and could be eliminated. Um, I don't know if they're playing today, tomorrow, but, I mean, they could be out of the playoffs, and yet that's still a team to me. If they found a way to escape that series against the Mavs, uh, I would pick them over Utah and, you know, banged up Phoenix, banged up Denver. Uh, I would probably pick them in that series, too. I, I think Denver actually would have probably made it out of the West if, if maybe all the rosters were completely healthy. But based off current iterations, I, probably the Clippers, honestly, even though they're losing their series in a game away from elimination, that's probably the team I'm looking at. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, honestly. Like, I, I could see a scenario where, you know, Utah beats Dallas, but they lose to if it's the Clippers. Um, and then, like you said, like, I don't I don't know. I, I might go the Suns, honestly, but who knows? Uh, it's tough to tell. Like, if, if Jokic comes out this series and averages 40-12-12, then maybe it's tough to get by them. <laughs> so the West just seems to me to be a complete crapshoot, which I didn't think it was going to be the case coming into the year. It, it seems like so seldom in the NBA do we actually get – a wide open like race in one of the conferences. We kind of had it last year in the East with the Heat coming out of it, but as you kind of alluded to, maybe part of that was just kind of the the bubble magic, so to speak. But this year in the East, you could kind of say it's open as well. The the prohibitive favorite is the Brooklyn Nets, but they're not the one seed, and there's a couple other teams in there. I I don't know. Maybe you're giving a real chance to the Hawks as um, kind of the underdog among the the four teams remaining there in the East, but it, it seems like it really is a three horse race between the Bucks, Sixers, and Nets. And I know specifically with the Bucks Nets series coming up in the second round here, uh, you actually think the Bucks have a have a good shot, don't you? Yeah, I really like the Bucks. Um, and for the record, I think I think the Bucks are probably the only team in the NBA that could eliminate the Nets. Uh, over a seven-game series, because I think that highly of the Nets, and also that they're that healthy, right? Like, I think every other contender, um, if you stretch that definition out to, you know, Philadelphia, Joel Embiid is dealing with his injury thing. Milwaukee recently, I believe, with DiVincenzo is dealing with an injury thing. Phoenix is dealing with an injury thing. Denver is dealing with an injury thing. Um, I think maybe Utah has avoided some of that stuff. I'm uh, and I'm trying to think. I, I know the Clippers limped into the playoffs a little bit with some injury stuff. Dallas has dealt with some injury stuff. Um, it just feels like Brooklyn, actually, because it's core rested and sat out and um, rehabbed so many games in the shortened off season. Uh, you know, they actually have an advantage in that their roster is complete and together. Um, I just give that much respect to a team like Milwaukee that. You know, I think sometimes coaching has held them back and held them back. And I don't mean um, that, uh, you know, Budenholzer is a, a bad coach. I, I mean it from the perspective of um, uh, just the idea that they don't always play their stars big minutes. They don't always give their guys chances, uh, you know, to go out and exhaust themselves in the playoffs. How many times does Giannis play 34 minutes? And it's like the other star and the other team is playing 42. You know, why aren't you matching this? Um, and, and I think now they've kind of, uh, assemble the roster that has that extra star with Drew Holiday. Uh, I think Chris Middleton, obviously, I think what he had a game winner, um, a big shot uh, against the Heat, that was a big deal for him. Um, I, I just like their roster. They're complete. They shoot the ball well. They have so much top-tier talent, and then also they have the firepower with the other guys. Um, you know, have to see how their injury changes them, but I give them a real chance. But, you know, if they don't beat Brooklyn, 
I don't think an injured Philadelphia does. I'm not sure an injured Philadelphia gets past Atlanta. If Joel Embiid plays and he plays every game, they're going to win the series. If he doesn't, I think that opens it up because I think Joel Embiid is that good um, that he can change a series just by like that. Um, yeah, I, I just I don't I don't really know who's going to beat Brooklyn, and maybe that's colored by you know Brooklyn had like a 28 point comeback against Phoenix that they won that game. But um, I've seen enough of Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving to know. Uh, that you know you don't you don't really want to mess with those guys, and then when you think about someone like Joe Harris just you know spotting up on the wing at all times, and that's like the fourth or fifth fifth option at all times, uh, you know that's a tremendously terrifying team. Yeah, my only thing with the Nets is if the Sixers were healthy, you know, like uh, the thing with the Bucks is how are they going to stop Giannis? That's a question most people have to ask. But also the yeah. fact that now they have Drew Holiday, like maybe that helps take away a little bit one of Kyrie Irving or James Harden but with the Sixers it felt like to me they were built pretty well to beat the Nets if Joel Embiid was healthy which again that's that's a big question mark because of the fact that with the Nets it's all offense no defense but the offense is so good that it just really doesn't really matter about the defense the thing with the Sixers they have the best defense in the NBA and when you look at it and say the Nets have this guy, this guy, that guy who can be great offensive players. Like when you look at the Sixers, Joel Embiid, probably the best defensive center in the NBA. Um, Matisse Thybul is one of the best defensive wing players in the NBA. Ben Simmons might be the best defensive perimeter player in the NBA. Yeah. Danny Green is like one of the best defensive role players in the NBA. And you go down the list. Uh, it just feels like they would at least be able to match up enough defensively that you don't have to worry about saying with most teams, it's like, well, we might be able to throw somebody on Kevin Durant and James Harden, but not Kyrie Irving. We might be able to throw on Kyrie Irving and James Harden, but not Kevin Durant with the Sixers. It feels like they could most overlap all those guys. But again, if, if Joel Embiid's not healthy, it's, it's, yeah. it's a non-starter. Well, and, and the thing about Joel Embiid's season that was so insane was his efficiency, mostly on you know close-up two-point jump shots, things shots in basketball that aren't usually efficient, and things that he hasn't necessarily been the most efficient on. I mean, he's been good; he's always been a you know a tough shot maker and a very talented player, but he hasn't always been the best guy at those things. And his efficiency took su- such a huge leap forward this year. Um, I'm doing some projection and, and admittedly talking about some things that I personally don't have all the details on when I speculate on like how one injury affects him, but it was enough for him to miss a game and miss most of another game. Um, that tells me it's going to at least hinder him a little bit. And, you know, if he doesn't have that same ability just offensively, that's where I think you start to worry because I like what Philadelphia did. Um, they added guard and roster talent to, to bring, I think a little bit more shooting. And part of that also was just losing Al Horford. And, you know, obviously I I think he's a good player. He's part of why the Thunder early on um, kind of over, you know, exceeded expectations. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you want shooting, you want spacing around those guys, especially when Ben Simmons is on the court too. And I, I'm just not necessarily convinced without Embiid at, you know, his basically 100% that they would have the firepower to go toe-for-toe toe there. Although I do agree. I mean, they, there's obviously a reason why they were the number one seed. And, you know, it's funny, um, they, they played a game – uh, against Phoenix late in the year, not to tie everything back to the Suns, um, where I think there were like 0.8 seconds left, and I, Chris Paul was at the line. I believe it was a three-point game. Suns were leading. He misses the free throw. Joel Embiid palms it in one hand, throws it. You know, if a basketball court's, what, 94 feet, uh, 88 feet down the court, and it hits the backboard, hits the rim, and the only reason why it didn't go in is because 
you know, he had to throw it the length of the court. So it, it bounces out. It was on a line, though. I mean, if that shot was a 30-footer, it's going in. It's hitting the rim and bouncing down. And that was just one of those surreal moments where it was like Joel Embiid can do things with a basketball that, like, no other human in the history of the world has been able to do. Um, it would be so cool to get him uh, to watch him again uh, or go to the, the Eastern Conference Finals and see what he could do against either of those teams. Uh, I just question, you know, because any injury around the legs and the big man is scary, and then especially a guy like him who's had that history, you just kind of have to wonder how long that's going to uh, linger and how, how much that's going to hinder him. But who knows? Maybe Ben Simmons actually is like a lethal three-point shooter. He just has been sandbagging the NBA, and he's been waiting for the perfect moment to bust it out, and that is against the Nets in the conference finals, possibly. Who knows? Yeah, love it. He is uh, Scott Chasen, 24-7 sports, Fog.net. You won't catch uh, a ton of NBA stuff on Fog.net, but great KU coverage as well. Scott, thanks for the time as always. And I would say good luck to the Suns, but I don't know. That doesn't do well for me. Well, thanks for having me, and good luck for Jokic. I hope he enjoys his long vacation. (laughs) Scott Jason joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Thanks again. Thanks.